Hi, it's Jen. We know the news cycle has been difficult these last few weeks with continuing developments in Ukraine. So we offer today's podcast as a break from hard news. But for all the latest updates, be sure to visit NPR.org or tune into your local public radio station. Enjoy the show. Marlon James is the author of five books. His novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings, won the Man Booker Prize in 2015. Seven Killings tells the story of post-colonial Jamaica through the voices of 12 narrators and spans decades of contemporary Jamaican history. His latest work is a little different. The Dark Star Trilogy is a series of fantasy novels that take place in a fictionalized version of ancient Africa. There are monsters and violence and an epic quest. After the break, we'll talk to Marlon about the Dark Star Trilogy and the newest book in the series. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful, and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. And Marlon James joins us now to discuss. Marlon, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So great to be here. Uh, Marlon, the first book in the Dark Star trilogy is Black Leopard, Red Wolf. It came out in 2019. And like we said, it was it was a bit of a departure from your previous books. When did you decide to, to delve into the world of fantasy? Um, you know, I actually didn't know the answer to that question until somebody sent me the picture of, uh, for, of um, my first copy of, of um, Brief History of Seven Killings. And I noticed I took a picture and I posted it. It was on Facebook. And um, underneath it was a huge volume of African ceremonies. So I didn't realize that I was researching this novel from before Brief History even came out. So I would say from 2014. At the time, I don't think I was researching for a novel, though. I was just curious about my own mythological history, which, honestly, I didn't learn. And coming from you know, the last officer of the British colonial education, I knew a lot more about Mary Poppins than I did about Anansi. Mm-hmm. Is that how many of your books start, where there's a seed planted in your head, but you don't realize it's been planted? Oh, absolutely. And sometimes I pick the wrong seed. 
<laughs> um, because, you know, sometimes characters show up in my head and I have no idea why they're there and what, what they want to tell me. Um, I think that's probably why so many of my stories, even when they're in third person, they depend on voice so much um, because I don't know. And I, I to me, literally, you know, and this may be because I'm the, the son of a detective, but I do look at literature as a sort of detective work, mm. as a sort of mystery to be solved. And I sometimes become very intrigued with these characters, particularly the characters that seem to retreat from me. And then I sort of go down whatever dark alley they take me and, and become this sort of reporter and try to get the story. So when do you know that you've chosen the wrong seed? Usually when I am 40 to 50 to 60 pages too late. Uh, you know, um, Moonwitch actually started with 30 pages, 30 pages that are not in the book. And I remember... Um, getting to page 30 and being kind of overjoyed that this is not the story mm -hmm. because at least I didn't have to go all the way to 60 pages. <laughs> um, my record is 500 pages. Nobody wants that. <laughs> Wait, you wrote 500 pages of a book and then realized this is not the story I want to tell? Yeah, no, this is not the story. I just couldn't quit. Um, so I'm getting better at that. <laughs> Wait, so <laughs> but, <laughs> Yeah. What is your relationship like with your editor, Marlon? I have to ask you that. <laughs> He's very long-suffering. Um, thank God, nothing, nothing surprises, nothing surprises Jake. Um, plus, I don't think he see, he's seen those pages. He, wa he wants to see them, but he never will. Hmm. Um, but that's how it happens. I sort of stumble and fumble, sometimes picking the wrong... I, I mean, I wouldn't say they're the wrong characters. They're characters who lead me to the person I want to tell the story about. It's hmm. kind of like when you show up at a party with people and then you meet more interesting people. I like that. <laughs> now, you jokingly call this series the, the African Game of Thrones, and it might have been a joke, but the comparison definitely stuck around. What made you make that connection in your head? Uh, because what I love about George's stuff is that it never occurred to him that very, very adult issues, whether it's about human relationships or politics, should be separated from make-believe. Because uh, um, we're the only culture that has ever done that. Um, no other culture, no other point in time has ever done that. I don't think the Greeks looked at mythology. They didn't, they didn't look at Zeus as child's play. Um, the Norse certainly didn't look at Odin and, and Thor as child's play. And, and African folklore, yes, it's for children, but that wisdom you know, goes, is eternal. So I think it's just us starting to think that if a witch shows up, it must be a fairy tale. And I love that Game of Thrones stood in very stark defiance for that. If you came there looking for a children's story, boy, did you come to the wrong place. Mm. But if you came there expecting all of what we expect from fiction, what we call quote-unquote serious fiction, all of that is there. And we should mention you're referring to George R.R. R. Martin, the author of the Game of Thrones series. What do you think about the distinctions between literary fiction and fantasy and, and sci-fi? It's interesting, this, this distinctions. And whenever, and sometimes whenever we want to dress up sci-fi and fantasy so that we think it's literary, we call it speculative fiction. Um, last time I checked, all fiction is speculative. Otherwise, it's nonfiction. Um, I think that 
I, I have no problem with the distinctions, actually. I have no problem with, the, with the, the calling of genres. I certainly have no problem distinguishing between science fiction and fantasy. Um, I do have a problem when people use it as a way to restrict literature or as a way to, um, as a way to sort of rank them. You, you can't look at, at fantasy or sci-fi as a lower genre, but then go and praise the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Iliad is great, but, you know, but a mythical battle is not. But the Iliad is a mythical battle. It didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um it's the you know the way in which we the, the way in which we tell the stories about ourselves throughout history has always been the myths. And to me, sci-fi and fantasy is always is myth-making. The great thing about fantasy is that we we can see different versions of ourselves and explore what would have happened. The great thing about sci-fi, the very best sci-fi novels got there first. Um now we're burning books again and banning mouse and all sorts of books. Fahrenheit 51 already told us this. So it's, um, I think we rank genres to our detriment. I want to get a bit into your craft and the, the process that goes into creating a, a fantasy world. Because we should mention Black Leopard, Red Wolf, and, and the sequel are, I think, both over 1,200 pages combined. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you go about creating a world that you can keep track of? Mm. Uh, <laughs> lots of post-its all over my wall. <laughs> I have forgotten what the color of my wall is. I now think it's neon yellow, neon green, and neon pink. <laughs> At least it's <laughs> colorful. <laughs> At least it's colorful. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's reading and it's constantly reading. And it's reading history. And, and reading African histories is, is a tricky thing because if, if it was written, you know, anywhere from the, from the 18th to the 19th, even to the, to the, you know, the 60s, it's highly suspect. Um, it's written sometimes from a European gaze, so it really doesn't serve any purpose other than to get a really good joke. Um, so it's a lot of current research is a lot of, um, but it's also a lot of ancient research. One thing that we're doing, and I hope we do more of it is to start taking our folk songs our folklore, our oral stories and our griots tales seriously. Um, and we never used to before. We used to think it's just, you know, myth, legend, music. We're taking those things more seriously because they're telling us things. So, so I went back to a lot of those original sources to as many, as, as many of the epics I could find that are in English. Um, uh, you know, a lot of research, um, archaeological work, um, current history, but also, and this is important, going back to novels, um, lots of Amos Tutuola, Dio Faguna, Bessie Head, um, Chinua Achebe, um, Wole Soyinka. Um, Dio Faguna wrote the first novel, I think that was in Yoruba, um, Forest of a Thousand Demons. It was trans- Wole Soyinka translated it. All these, you know, the story of Sundiata. So all the, the as far back as I could go um, to, to, to find my sources and then try to spin something new out of it. Well, Moon Witch Spider King isn't a traditional sequel. It, it acts almost as both prequel and sequel because it takes place mm-hmm. in the same world as the previous novel. But instead of being in the perspective of Tracker, the previous protagonist, we're following an almost 200-year-old witch through the course of her life. Mm-hmm. What made you create a, a story 
around the original story? I because I I um I didn't want to fall into the with Sugland, I didn't want to fall, fall I didn't want to fall into the trap that um Tracker fell into, which is to completely dismiss her. Or to have this idea. Tracker goes around saying she's like 300 years old. Um nobody's 300 years old. Um so I but I knew that if I merely had Sugland respond to Tracker, then it's not a novel, it's just a rebuttal. Hmm. And it, she wouldn't exist in any, any other context than to disprove Tracker. And in her story, Tracker is not even so much the antagonist. He, he, he's, he's, um, he's barely a figure because her story is bigger than that. And when, in writing it, I had to also realize that it's not Tracker's tell story anymore and that her story is bigger or even just simply more different than his. And, and yes, all the, all the characters end up in the same point. But I think um, for, for, for Sogolon, it's a bigger story. And I knew that even when writing Tracker's story, that his was pretty narrow. And that somebody in this mix, Sogolon, for me, Sogolon, also because she was the oldest, knew what, what was a bigger story here. We're talking to best-selling writer Marlon James. His new book is called Moon Witch Spider King, and it's available now. I'm Jen White. More from our guest in a moment. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful, and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to our conversation with writer Marlon James. Uh, Marlon, you grew up in Kingston, Jamaica. What did you like to read as a, as a kid? Um, pretty much whatever I could get my hands on. Um, lots of fairy tales, uh, Brothers Grimm, actually comics, and it's um, X-Men in particular. Um, I used to joke that reading X-Men is a lot like being an X-Men, especially when you're a nerd, like I was a nerd, and you picked on, the cool kids picked on you, but you always do their homework. And I'm like, man, I'm a total mutant. I'm, I'm, I'm serving the world that dislikes me. <laughs> how, do, how do you think that early reading structured the way you approach writing now? Well, I think because I used to lose myself in comics so much that I, um, I, st- I always looked at the world of fantasy and make-believe. And to me, superhero comics was fantasy as an escape. And I think I still do. I wrote this novel, wrote Moomit Spider King, pretty much during the pandemic. It's pretty much my plague novel. Let's call it my COVID novel. Um, and it was, it was my way to escape the reality of what was going on. As long as I was in this world, even though there are pretty terrible things happening in that world, it was still an escape. So I think that's what reading was for me. Even, you know, the, the, the so-called, you know, maybe the, 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 I don't want to call them realistic, but the, the, 
I guess the novels more about present day or even or historical novels. To me, they were always an escape. Um, of course, they you know those came with issues. Most of those novels also reflecting worlds that were not mine. And it would be a long time, certainly not until my teenage years, when I saw a person looking like me in a novel I read. Um, but they were still, even the novels, um, you know, set far away and in and, far, and long ago, were a sort of an escape, and 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 the it gave me the chance to have more than one life. We got this email from Brian who says, after busting my ankle running, I picked up the first installment of the Dark Star trilogy and couldn't put it down. My pre-ordered copy of Moon Witch Spider King arrived today, and I've been reading all evening by candlelight with Tumani Diabate playing in the background. I feel like a kid just discovering the joy of reading all over again. Thank you, Mr. James. I want you to Talk about your journey with Sagalon because we we get dropped into her world, and I mean from the very beginning, it's it's a brutal world for her just mm-hmm. from from birth. How did you experience the journey of of writing her and discovering who she is? Well, I had to I had to tap into her spirit first um, before I looked at the world because then it could have I could have. It could have easily ended up being her just constantly being oppressed by the world around her. And she is oppressed by the world around her. But um, Sutherland develops a very defiant attitude from very early. And honestly, that attitude is what saves her life more often than not. And that attitude is what makes her realize there's more to her and more to her than, than what people, you know, what's being constantly pronounced on her. And also that... Um, you know, she comes. She 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 comes to the realization that it's her wits that are going to make her survive pretty early, and often that is what happens. Anytime she's blindsided, it's by something emotional which she didn't count for because she wasn't really counting on that. She wasn't counting on things like falling in love and and so on, but she was counting on always being one step ahead of everybody else and smarter than everybody else to survive. So she. Um, I don't think I think she goes through unimaginable hardship, but I think it's essential for Sutherland that she doesn't see it that way, that she is surviving and triumphing over all these things. Or should have been sort of more down by it. You know, I've written women um, running away from gunmen. I've had written women trying to survive slavery. And the thing I think they all have in common is that they have to have a certain attitude and will to survive that's within them, regardless of what happens, so that they can deal with, with the things that come their way and sometimes, you know, rise above it or learn to live with it. Hmm. I, one of the things I, I observed about Sagalon, and, and it connects to something you said earlier about being the, the son of a, a detective Mm-hmm. There is yeah. there's an element of that in her. There's this this quiet observation of the world around her, um, and just taking in other people's actions and motivations. How how much of that is a part of where she derives her her power from? That ability mm-hmm. to act as an observer. Oh, um, most of it, if not if not if not all of it, because one, she is an observer, but she becomes an observer because a lot of the times nobody's observing her. 
And whenever she is being observed, it almost hits her off guard um, because she's the one with her with her eyes on and with her eyes paying attention. And uh, and it's and it more often than not um, saves her life. But she's also somebody who is sort of I was I was going to say power adjacent without power, but she has considerable power. But, you know, she's royalty adjacent, but not royalty. And it's it's sort of. You remind me of the days of, of you know, going to my, 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 you know, a posh high school and being rich adjacent, but not rich. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I never may, I never confusing the two. And I think Sogolam, um, Sogolam, you know, makes sure she never confuses the two because it's, you know, her situation could be changing so quick and sometimes it changes in an instant. And um, all she has, you know, um, for her, all she has that remains constant, you know, is her wits. What does it mean for you to write a, a strong woman? How do you think through what that means for any given character? And for Sagan well, specifically? Yeah, it means going back and reading all my favorite strong woman characters. Um, you know, it, it's um, Toni Morrison's beloved sat on my desk the whole time I was writing this, and I read and reread it. Um, um, I read reread Song of Solomon, even though, funny enough, even though the main character in Song of Solomon is is um, is male, the the one of of Morrison's archetypes, the sort of the three woman family, um, that's the second time that appears in her fiction, um, and that also, you know, that also, um, you know guided me i so a lot of it is is going back to to novels of of strong women and um and you know all the the sort of the fiction that i usually read and that's what i turned to um before i started writing sogolan but i also knew that just because you know the fact that she is how old as she is is mostly because she just you know the will to survive and i wanted to interrogate that it's not just enough to say she survived um you know she you know it's it's figuring out what that means and how how exactly that happened and what price did she pay what was the cost well we heard from some of you about the fantasy books that you like to read here's what barry in virginia and hannah in indiana left in our inbox i just finished reading the eternal champion by michael moorcock the Eternal Champion is an anti-heroes story set in what is an anti-fantasy world. It's been stripped of all of its Tolkien-esque romanticism. There are kings and princesses and magic swords and elves, but the conflict uh, is one of like a kind of Cold War fatalism. It's a sobering uh, read, but it isn't really interested in being dark or violent for its own sake, and I'm glad I read it. I absolutely adore fantasy novels. Um, I think I resisted for a long time because I thought they were kind of nerdy. Uh, but during the pandemic, a friend gifted me a fantasy novel, and it's just it's taken off since then. And I've read everything I can get my hands on. Currently working my way through the Shadow and Bone and Six of Crows, um, sort of Grishaverse novels uh, from Lee Bardugo. And I can't wait to continue to, to discover even more awesome fantasy books. Marlene, how do you think about writing fantasy from a Black perspective and an African perspective? Um, it means forgetting, not forgetting, it means setting aside um, most of the fantasy I actually love. 
mm-hmm. uh, because uh, you know a lot of foundational fantasy novels are in many ways an alternative take on European medieval history. And even if it's not that, there are still those values. It's still it's still a sort of a look at the Dark Ages, or it has these you know Af- it has these um, European Eurocentric or even Christian um, values. Um, there's the knight and good triumphs over evil, and you know there are witches and there are dragons and so on, and all those elements of fantasy. A lot of those I also have, but I had to let go of the sort of easy idea of good versus evil and the idea of the sort of noble knight and the idea, and even the way in which our creatures and shapeshifters, um, you know, are inhabit a lot of fiction. All the evil monsters tend to be dark, mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, the, 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 the dignified monsters or the good monsters tend to be white or glowing or so on. And, and to just, and, and also to, to sort of, um, resist the, the 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 very simple ways in which a kind of Eurocentric view could enter. Even when, you know, when I was describing these African cities, I it was very easy, it would have been very easy to do a whole look, it looks just like a European city. We have we have pyramids and so on. And that that again would be missing the point. Um, you know, a hut made from mud in Africa is no different from a hut made in of dung in Scandinavia. But we think the Vikings are, we think the Vikings are fascinating, but the Maasai are primitive, even though it's the same hut. Mm. Um, so it's it wasn't just the building these worlds; it was also not bringing um, the the values, the Western values I had to describe these worlds. So it was, it was a huge act of forgetting, honestly, um, in order to write this world. In the act of forgetting, Marlon, I also wonder if part of this series in particular is about creating something that, that reflects you in a way you didn't see when you were younger. I was a huge science fiction and fantasy reader as I was growing up, still am, and I had the same experience. And until I discovered Octavia Butler, I was nowhere in those stories. And now we have, you know, people like Tomi Adeyemi and Nettie Okorafor and, and Tracy Dion, and it's and it's wonderful. But is part of this a response to your younger self? Yeah, I... I... The thing about reading fantasy now and those writers and people like Toshi Onyebuchi and, and even, you know, novels like The Poppy War, which my, my students introduced me to, is it makes me almost with a, some slight bitterness wish I was 14. Mm. <laughs> it I makes know. me wish uh, that I was 14. And, and I just, I'm trying to imagine what, what, what kind of, of, of adulthood I'd have with these, because these, these are the th- great thing with fantasy is that it's, it's new myth making, um, which I think is important to us as a people. Um, and I, yeah, I, 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 um, I keep imagining what it would have been had I read these novels and read these sto- stories when I was growing up. But I'm, I, but you know, it's so, it's great that they're here and it's great that um, readers will continue to have a wider idea of not just what fantasy is, but what fantasy can do. Um, and, you know, and of course, this includes science fiction as well. Um, I love that the three-body problem is, is a, you know, a worldwide phenomenon. 
Um, I love it almost as much as that BTS is the best pop group and the biggest pop group in the world. You know? <laughs> um, that was a bit frightening slip when I said best. Um, but uh, I, I, I just think it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's the vision of inclusion without necessarily saying that, that I don't think we realized we needed all along. Now, there's a film adaptation of Black Leopard, Red Wolf in the works now. Actor Michael B. Jordan picked up the rights to the book. What can you tell us about that? Um, that We're still in the planning stages. Um, COVID added a good two years to everybody's plans. Um, so, you know, we're, we're kind of sort of dusting off and, and restarting now that things are opening up a little bit and and right now we're still, you know, we're in the, you know, the writing and conceptual stage, but it's going to happen. Well, these books are very popular and, and they have a fan base. Uh, that fan base will likely grow <laughs> with the film adaptation. We know fans can be very dedicated to, mm-hmm. you know, having the book reflect the film. And how do you yeah. interact with films with fans and how are you thinking about that dynamic? I, you know, I... Uh, I, you know, I'm a big believer that there are a lot of things a writer can do with a novel, but a writer can't make a novel come alive. I think readers do that. And, and you know, it's, it's and I, I like when readers, you know, take ownership of a novel. And, 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 um, and think, what they're really doing is taking ownership of their imaginations. And um, there is no question that, uh, you know, until the Lord of the Rings film came out, there were, you know, millions and millions of Frodo's. After there's probably only one. I think everybody just thinks Elijah Wood. <laughs> it, it's one of the things that happens. But I, you know, I am pretty sure that um, we're going to have some pretty robust and strong opinions. Just as though I'm pretty sure there's sooner going to be some pretty robust and strong, and occasionally sexy fan fiction. <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, to me, it's great. It's, it's great. I, I, that's what I did. Um, yeah. the, very first, the very first stories I ever wrote were reactions to stories I liked. Mm. I didn't realize I was writing fan fiction, but that's what I was doing. Yeah. Before we let you go, do you know who the main character of the third book in the trilogy will be? It will be, and it's a secret. Ah, ah Marlon James. <laughs> He's the best-selling author behind the Dark Star trilogy. The second book in the series is called Moon Witch, Spider King. It's out now. Marlon, when you're ready to spill that secret, come talk to us. All right. Exclusive. Thanks. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.